Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive. I'm your host, Eddie Maunder. This podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Recruitment Solutions. They specialize in recruiting into the automotive, aerospace and defense sectors for both contract and permanent roles across the UK and Europe. For more information, check out their website, www.rtrs.co.uk. And now let's crack on with the podcast. Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive with me, Eddie Maunder. Today, I'm joined by the former supply chain manager at companies including Tesla, LEVC and Arrival, Matt Newman. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Thanks, Eddie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Brilliant. Well, where I always like to start is right at the beginning of your career. So how did you end up in the automotive industry? Um, by accident, really. I, um, I finished university and I had a written script, uh, which I was trying to get uh, made into a TV show um, and was approaches, approaching uh, various production companies uh, to no avail, uh, whilst uh, also considering going into teaching. Um, I needed to pay the rent and was working with a recruitment agency who placed me at Lotus um, initially just for a few weeks. Okay, so just to jump back on that then, what, what did you, st- you, you mentioned you were trying to sell um, a TV script. What, what did you do at university and, and what, uh, what were you yeah. going to do when you were younger then, I guess? So um, automotive definitely wasn't something that I was you know, looking to get involved in. I think the closest I got to, to uh, automotive as a child was a, a scale electric set for Christmas, <laughs> uh, which I broke with orange squash. Um, but no, I had, I had ambition, ambitions to be um, a writer and an actor. So my, um, um, my introduction at university was mainly doing uh, theatre in English. Um, so as I say, I, I, I fell into, uh, automotive pre- preliminary. My father had always worked within uh, aviation and engineering and, um, as exciting as it was to watch him and the team and his team make him support these incredible helicopters and learning about that area. Um, I was more fascinated in playing with the buttons and pretending to be <laughs> in the TV show Airwolf, but, um, definitely, uh, engineering wasn't, um, engineering and vehicles and automotive definitely wasn't, uh, wasn't the plan. Okay, so you, you mentioned that you um, you were speaking to a recruiter and you got your first role at Lotus. You know, when you look at your background there, uh, how did you actually secure that role at Lotus? Because it doesn't look like you'd really have any relevant experience for anything within automotive coming to uni. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably um, unprecedented now, but um, well, especially with, what, with all the courses and qualifications you can get within supply chain and procurement. Uh, but my route was more practical uh, with on-site training, I guess. Uh, I guess you can call it apprenticeship. Um, but that's a very broad way of selling it. Um, I initially went in, as I said, as an admin assistant and from the, there started supporting, working, learning and listening to the buyers within the, the Lotus Central Purchasing uh, and progress from there. Okay, so uh, as an assistant buyer then, um, or administrative uh, administrative assistant, what what sort of responsibilities and what was your exposure to the procurement field? Well, as I say, I mainly went as an admin assistant, and I was just I was eager to learn. Um, mm. I'm a good I'm a good communicator. Um, people, especially suppliers, seem to respond well to me. Um, I pick things up very quickly, so learning ERP systems, understanding processes and procedures became sort of second nature. Uh, my responsibly, uh, my responsibilities mainly were uh, supporting the buyers, raising the purchase orders, uh, requests for quotation, uh, chasing in-house stakeholders for information as well as suppliers. If anything, it's a great grounding for anyone wanting to get involved in procurement and end-to-end supply chain. 
Right. And, and what was the, you, you mentioned that it sounds like off your own back, you did a lot of learning and development and figuring things out, learning on the job. Was there much in terms of training and development? Because you said it was loosely like an apprenticeship. It, yeah, I mean, it was minimal, really. I, I, was, I was shown where to sit. I was given a computer, <laughs> I was given a computer, a phone. And, and from then on, I would be constantly shouted upon by the buyers to to raise their orders, do their filing and make them tea. I mean, there's a huge amount of administration involved within supply chain. So being analytical with good numeracy skills uh, was a key factor. Ultimately, uh, what has always held me in good stead throughout is, is holding some level of good, strong common sense skills. And, and, and obviously and not being afraid to ask questions, no matter how stupid those questions you think they are. I mean, those, the team there were, were fantastic and uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a new vocation that I never thought I'd get involved in. Right. And after you, you worked as um as the admin assistant or an assistant buyer, you then moved into to Lotus Motorsport as a team buyer. So were Lotus Cars and Lotus Lotus Motorsport under the same umbrella at the time, or were they run as separate companies back then? Um, no, they, they were under the same umbrella. Um, Lotus were involved within the Formula Three Auto Bytel Championship. Um, involving over 25 cars, which contained uh, sponsors and independent drivers. Um, it was a big deal for Lotus, and uh, Michael King, uh, the then CEO of Lotus, was a big fan of the team uh, due, uh, due to the amount of attention and advertising it brought in. Um, the team ran on site next to the testing track. Uh, the motorsport cars were tested, created, built, and materials stored, and was managed by this wonderful guy called Chris Arnold, who looks after a team of over 20 people. Um, the motorsport team, in my opinion, at that point, seeing them as this you know, little admin assistant, um, I'd see these motorsport people, and they were a bit like cheerleaders of a sort of American high school. They sort of walk around the Hethel site with these bespoke Lotus motorsport jackets and seem to get precedence over other members of staff in anything they asked for. So, so of course, I, I wanted to work with them. They, 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 they definitely seem to have it all made, worked out. And was it a big step up for you then, going from the admin role into, into a buyer role? It was exciting. Um, I'd started gaining confidence in my day-to-day -day activities with the purchasing team and had started to build a good relationship with the purchasing manager of Lotus Motorsport, a guy called Dave Keeling, um, who was my first mentor, really. Uh, when my 10th uh, gig job uh, was about to end with the central purchasing team, Dave invited me to join him uh, to help run and support the materials for the team. And it was, it was here I really started to enjoy working in the automotive environment. Brilliant. Okay. And in terms of the, the role in itself, and what were your responsibilities as a buyer then? What, what were your day-to-day -day activities looking like? Well, it was, a, it was a massive difference, really. I mean, the day-to-day -day running, although it was part of the Lotus business, it was also separate. I mean, it was a younger team with a different goal to that of Lotus. Uh, and with it, different priorities and manners of work. I mean, monies were provided by Lotus Cars, but not enough really to fund what we needed to do. So advertising and sponsorship played a big part of the team. Um, for my part, the degree of supply, purchasing, logistics, inventory management was intense. I mean, it was really here that I had my first real introduction into working with uh, build teams and engineers and, and learning how to read engineering designs and working within this environment. I had two incredible uh, design engineers, uh, Brooke Taylor and Mars Lovett, who, who taught me so much. And with the support of the track team, uh, we continued to support the race weekends up until the end of the tournament. I mean, it was a, a wonderful experience, learning every aspect of automotive industry and sort of microbytes, uh, working in sales, marketing, logistics. I mean, it was here that I identified my 
continual want to work as part of the team, um, the camaraderie, the support, the care, intensity and passion. I mean, you had everyone working together late into the evening, every weekend. I mean, we worked hard to a joint goal and that sort of stuck with me throughout my career. I mean, most importantly, it taught me about firefighting, uh, prioritizing workloads, building relationships both in-house and with external suppliers. Okay, fantastic. And, and in terms of the, um, like, I, I think you've, you've already touched on this slightly, but compared to Lotus cars, working on the motorsport side of things how how much did the pace differ in terms of <laughs> not not dramatically different to me i'm afraid um uh, the, the the pay uh for motorsport i mean oh no. pace <laughs> the pace sorry <laughs> the pace oh, of pay. work yes sorry, not, it's, not it's the your, pay <laughs> sorry it's your, it's your language um it's uh, the pace the pace was the pace was <laughs> the pace was dramatically different i mean you were working, as I say earlier, you were working late nights and into weekends. Um, yeah. And you had uh, to get materials in very quickly. You had to have, uh, if, if I would be stuck sometimes working from the, uh, what we used to call the clubhouse, uh, whilst the team were out racing. Um, and so I'd have to wait for them to, to phone me to tell me um, that, you know, they were okay and they didn't need me anymore and I could go home. And that would be late in the evening and nine times out of ten they used to forget I was there. Um, but the, the, the main thing was getting materials to them. I mean, there was lots of rushing around and uh, chucking subframes in the back of cars and getting them to uh, a place that had a helicopter to, to support a spa. <laughs> um, but it was, it was uh, a, a massive, massive difference. And uh, with the support of people at Lotus at the time as well, um, we were able to do it. But it was, it was a completely different thing. The firefighting alone uh, was immense. And as I say, it's it's a fantastic place to actually learn um, to support that type of activity. I mean, no better. Brilliant. And once you moved on from Lotus, which was your, your first role within automotive, you yeah. then joined Multimatic as a commodity buyer. Uh, so for anybody that doesn't know, could you give us a bit of an overview of who they are and what they do? Yeah, sure. Uh, when I joined uh, Multimatic, they were originally called Dynamic Suspensions, and then they later changed their name to Multimatic. I mean, at the time I joined, the company was mainly focused on um, uh, vehicle suspension, door hinges, uh, safety and structural technology. I mean, now Multimatic are, are one of the most recognized engineering and advanced yeah. technology firms in the world. Huge, huge place. Um, but basically, uh, for me, the, the, the Auto Vitale Championship was coming to an end and the team had started to disband. Um, both the engineers, Greg and Martin, I mentioned earlier, had... Um, moved across to a local company, uh, this uh, Multimatic, and invited me to meet with their manager there. Um, the business needed a company buyer to support their day-to-day -day activities, and I was brought in for support. It was a very different experience to what I was used to. Um, the team at the time were very, very good, and support provided to me was you know, sincere. But it was here that I, I kind of realized that, that I, I did not really enjoy being a buyer. I mean, after you've made savings of 10 to 15% of spend in the first year, it was then difficult to perform it again the second year. Mm. Um, it became, well, I became uncomfortable, you know, restless within that type of environment. I was used to the, the stress, the firefighting, you know, looking after all aspects. But here I was just planning and, and analyzing data. Yeah. And one question that I have as well is obviously you've been working like an OEM previously Multimatic or a tier one what are the difference in terms of pressures going from like an oem to a tier one environment 
it's just I think the, the, there's a lot there's a larger pressure for the tier one environment uh, to support the OEM because obviously um, they're their key customer throughout. Um, it's um, it's a difficult one. It's a smaller it's a smaller firm. It's it's more there's more organisation and process and procedure within the the larger OEMs to follow. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, with the tier one, it's uh, rampant and consistent throughout, uh, ensuring that everything's met to the to facilitate the requirements of that OEM um, business. Um, their, their quality, for example, their their, their timing, etc. There's a lot of emphasis on that on a day to day basis. It's it's a it's a different a different beast. Okay, and for in two thousand and three, you moved back to Lotus. Uh, this time as a senior production purchasing controller. So what was the difference in responsibilities in, in this role from a uh, buyer role? Because obviously well, it's still within Yeah, I mean, I was pleased to get the call asking me to, uh, to if I'd be interested in coming back. Um, I, whilst I also, you know, helped with the, the run out of the, the, I was also, you know, I was going back in there to start to support a new program, but also uh, there to do a run out of um, one of Lotus's most prestigious cards, the Esprit, it was coming to its end. Um, but it also goes back to my point I was making earlier about um, being eager to eager to learn and a good communicator and being likable and the impression you leave behind. But I'd only briefly met and worked with the then manager, uh, Matthew Jones, and his team and helped him with some parts, uh, getting them in for him quickly and supported some logistical activities. But that brief meeting sort of left a good impression with him and, and the relationships I'd built with the purchasing team prior and during my time at Lotus Motorsport. It sort of allowed my name and character to be used when the team were looking for someone to come in and support. Um, the role itself was a mixture of project management and supply chain, um, but due to uh, uh, an HR technicality, they could not give me the title of supply chain. So, that's yeah. what I, um, I mean, I love this role as uh, after a while as my confidence, experience and exposure within a business grew. And due to the mentoring that was being granted to me from people like um, Richard Ludwig, Clive Dobson, Son Lockenden, Mark Donnell, um, Ben McGuire, uh, they and the business began to trust uh, trust me more and relinquish the micromanagement and sort of allow me to grow. Um, my role then for the next five years was working on each new concept uh, prototype build, uh, the Newell and the AP builds, as other people know, uh, basically the vehicles prior to production. So in doing this, it allows the company uh, to test every engineering aspect along with the financial viability of every car and possible demand. So for each product, uh, project, I would start working exclusively on the creation of the, the bill of materials. First with the design and project team, uh, and then the engineers and accounts team. Uh, you then look at determining any transferable parts from other vehicle platforms, then uh, the dis uh, bespoke parts, adding the costing throughout to generate an overall budget for each engineering commodity and for each car and project overall. I would then start looking at suppliers and where applicable and bring in new suppliers with the support of the quality team. I mean, gradually that bill of material uh, then develops into a story, a, a living thing you know, for each and every part. There'd be costs, timing, quality, uh, quality checks, internal and external suppliers, purchasing, material management, SQA, um, sorry, so, um, supplier quality assurance, packaging, expediting logistics and material handling. Basically, you're creating a plan or, or route for every single part for the build um, from creator to stock on site. Um, you're left at the end of every project then with a portfolio of the project in its entirety 
to hand across to the production purchasing and uh, material uh, production uh, material control teams. And it was my job to manage, support, communicate, publish each of these, working with stakeholders, suppliers, buyers, pickers, packers, drivers, uh, with my end customer being the team on the shop floor, the build team. I mean, the role and process, that role and process became the backbone of what's now my career and the foundations as to how I've since approached most projects and roles that I do going forward. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, and you mentioned uh, when you're at Multimatic, you'd come to the realization that procurement or an out and out buyer role wasn't quite for you. Um, yeah. Had you made before you went before you went back to Lotus? Had you made a conscious decision that supply chain was the way you wanted to go, or was it just a case of that's the role that, that you you ended up going? No, no, to no. I'd i come to the decision. I mean, buyers in themselves are are, are, are remarkable people, um, and it's a specialist um, profession. It certainly is. Um, for my side of things, for supply chain, I I manage and work with the buyers, um, but the negotiation and um, discussions had for contracts, piece prices and stuff like that so requires a different type of person. And I felt uncomfortable doing that. I like building the relationships with the suppliers and I needed to win their trust. And it's difficult to do that when, on the other hand, you're also trying to squash, um, squash them down for costing, you know? No problem. And so after, uh, after the stint at Lotus then, uh, in 2000 and, uh, 2007, you joined Tesla. As yeah. a, uh, well, and initially, I believe you, your first role was materials program manager yeah. and then moving into supply chain manager. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, Tesla at the time, I believe in the UK, were based on site at Lotus or, or very close by, weren't they? Um, well, how did that this role come about for you? Well, I mean, in the four years working as the, the production purchasing controller, I'd worked on over about 15 to 20 vehicle programs by then, uh, mm-hmm. supported the, the run out of two others in between projects. I was also supporting the aftermarket and material control team with design change controls um, and was becoming a little bit frustrated at Lotus. I mean, I was eager to progress and learn more. I was asking to sort of gain more uh, uh, and more experience on the shop floor and with the management, but um, but my superiors at the time weren't, weren't too keen on this. Um, when the next program came about, for example, the, the Lotus Sepang, sorry, the Lotus Europa, which of course I know Eddie, you, you, you must know because everyone knows the Lotus Europa. It was such a popular vehicle. Um, it wasn't, it didn't do very well at all. Um, anyway, I, went, I actually went up to the senior team and asked if they would let me run all the commercial management of the project myself. And with the proviso that my then boss would uh, chaperone me, uh, they let me do it. Um, the program went really well. Uh, the mule and AP builds were completed a month ahead of schedule. And my bosses were very, very pleased. And as such, were happy for me to start on this next project. Um, so whilst I was closing the build down, I was then approached by my manager to say that there was this mini project for a customer to Lotus who intended on producing an electric car. It was different to all the other builds I'd been involved with normally, as we normally have uh, normally managed the majority of the billing materials. But this particular external client uh, at this time only wanted um, Lotus to be responsible for, I think it was 40% of the bill of materials, the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really care about the, the, the politics. I was just pleased that I was getting involved in another project, you know. Anyway, at the time, uh, Tesla only had, uh, I think, two buyers in the UK and a couple in the US. Uh, the two in the UK who 
there was about, I think, 20, maybe 25 people based at Hethel working for Tesla. Um, and the two guys, these brilliant guys, Carl Ellis and Mike Truman, um, they were running the UK, European purchasing aspect for the Tesla vehicle, the Tesla Roadster. Yeah. Um, but their, the two handling was sort of non-existent as, as was their sort of logistical support, which meant that their bomb management and day-to-day -day data to support the program planning was suffering. Um, so, which meant that they were delaying the plan, uh, delaying planning, which was frustrating to me and clearly to the Lotus management. So in order to get things moving, I started supporting them and their data as well as the Lotus. Um, and that's when I started to get noticed by the Tesla team. Brilliant. And, and what was, um, so could you just talk us through what it was like working for, um, working for Tesla at that time? You know, they weren't really a household name at that period. Um, but obviously a very exact, exciting company with cutting edge technology. Um, the atmosphere, uh, the freedom, um, the feeling that you were making something new and exciting. Um, I mean, you have to remember in working in automotive, it's seldom that you see a new shape design quickly. I mean, you see lots of facelifts with new lights, grills, mm. engines, and tires, but the shape is normally consistent. I mean, we were not just creating a newly designed vehicle, we were making history. I mean, none of us knew it at the time, of course. I mean, my boss, uh, director of production, would constantly keep telling me that as hard as the job was, you know, one day you would look back and appreciate just how momentous this project was. And I, as much as I hate to agree with him now, he was absolutely right. For <laughs> um, so me, I was, I was being challenged every day. I mean, I was working on areas of supply chain I'd never encountered before. I was working with the HMRC, you know, the environmental agency. Um, I had great support from my US buyers, UK buyers external logistics team suppliers and incredible warehouse team i mean we were all in it together and we were damned if we were going to fail that was the type of attitude we had i think throughout this chat i mean uh, you know there's this ever ever recurring theme with me where you know one continuing aspect as to why i stay within a role or a business and that is purely down to the people um and at tesla i got to work with some of the most incredible people and together we went through so much together i mean a startup at the beginning is a sort of tight group it's a bit like a family you're working closely day and night weekdays and weekends you become more like siblings than you do colleagues and friends you know with yeah. people and then later on as production gets underway and the business grows those people migrate to senior managers directors you know kings of industry um within the business or elsewhere but throughout and forevermore you sort of share those moments in time with these people and whether it's the success of a the hundredth or one thousandth vehicle on the production line or when you're working late in a tiny office with one printer arguing about who had the last pizza pizza and, and why did they order the salad you know no one eats salad you know it's those sort of moments but that's that's it was so uh, you know it was fantastic i mean tesla wasn't a household name as you know um and it was it was hard I mean, in every startup I've been involved with, and I've done three now, um, each had the same issue. You know, no one knows who you are, which means your first challenge is to gauge people's interest and get, you know, get noticed through the front door. Um, it also didn't help at the time that Lotus themselves were going through a, a little bit of financial difficulty, which meant that suppliers were, were not getting paid on time, which meant that a lot of my time was spent having to convince suppliers that we, Tesla, were a separate entity and we had money to pay the bills and lots, mm -hmm. of, lots of performers were paid. Um, we didn't really have a brand as well at that point. Uh, no one really knew who we were. Um, and then of course, one day 
our Top Gear appearance happened in late 2008 um, when we were starting to ramp up to do production readiness. So marketing and the public perception, um, which was minimal. Um, but after the Top Gear, things started to improve uh, in supply support. But it also hindered um, due to the negative reaction the programme gave us. <laughs> um, I mean, for the record, but can I quickly add, Ed? Uh, I am a massive fan of Top Gear. I mean, not the you know, the original, not the, not the latest version. Um, but that segment was a complete shambles, partly due, in my opinion, to our US PR team, not appreciating yeah. how much of a big deal the programme was to the success of the car. But um, they didn't ensure we had the right engineers and the team on hand. And from what I know, they didn't actually prepare Clarkson. But if anything that came out from it, it meant that people started to understand us. Yeah. Um, my responsibilities... Um, I was responsible for creating and maintaining the supply chain uh, and logistical systems for all Europe. It was very, very different for me, as you can appreciate, coming from yeah. smaller versions. But right, what I, you know, uh, when I was strong in one set, I was able to learn on others. Um, I was managing the material procurement, um, the bill of materials, the logistics, the lifetime of the vehicle. I mean, I'm, it's a very, very rare thing for me at that point because I was helping create the prototype but then managing production all the way through to the very very end of the closure of the build which is rare to do um so from prototype throughout production then aftermarket until we closed in 2013 so i was responsible for supplying and coordinating materials to support about 20 to 40 vehicle builds a week um for over 2500 vehicles so i was also developing the, the just in time the uh, ERP systems, the Kanban, uh, working through an analysis for current and future material demands. I was managing the logistics, the warehouse team, whilst also working in conjunction uh, with the Lotus team. And of course, they had their own preferred methods to work as well, which we had to follow. Do you, do you think um, if Tesla didn't close down in the UK in 2013, do you think you still work there now? Um, I mean, <laughs> it was a different it was a different company by the time we finished. I mean, uh, I, as you say, I left in 2013. I mean, production had ended the year, uh, that year, um, the year before, and I was sort of securing all the materials and stock needed to support the aftermarket requirements for the, for the 10 year life cycle of the roadster. You know, every mm -hmm. vehicle has to be spent. Um, I'd set up uh, the logistical routes and support for each of the EU service centers whilst, you know, waiting for the main EU head of office to open in the, in the Netherlands. Um, by this time, Tesla had also begun production for the Model S. Um, and although there were opportunities for people to go to the US, it was never going to be as much fun. Um, the company had grown dramatically. You know, there's yeah. hundreds yeah. and hundreds of names now started. Um, Elon had taken the, you know, created the, the old, um, taken over an old NASA um, site. And there were hundreds and thousands of people. And it was becoming harder and harder for us uh, to get through to our, our line managers. I mean, it yeah. was basically no longer the same company. I mean, which was both good and bad, but um, no, it was it was time to time to move on. Okay, and while while you were there, um, was that was that the first role where you uh, experienced man management, where you actually had your own direct reports? Um, there was bits of it. I mean, um, at Lotus as well when I was working, but because there was such a sh uh, small crew of it. Um, but yes, it, I, I guess as a as a manager signing off people's holidays and that type of thing. Yes, I guess so. I had um, uh, two, three, 
six people under me. And there's only, again, there's still a very, very small team. I mean, we only had, um, people still don't believe that we only had um, three, maybe four members of staff actually working in the warehouse really? to, support, to support the um, Kanban. I mean, that's a, that's a skill in itself. That's people receiving goods, packing, um, uh, stacking, and uh, issuing out every single day. Um, the turnaround was unbelievable, as well as obviously registering and, and, and reporting information into SAP, identifying uh, deliveries if there's concerns or problems. I mean, it was a, a mammoth task. And again, credit goes where it's deserved to, to the people like um, um, James Watson and Pete Beasley over at Lotus, who, who helped us as well. I mean, and we helped Lotus as well. I mean, there was this strange little conflict that was going on. Um, I think it goes back, as I say, to the, the initial thing that Lotus liked to control the full product for an external customer, and they weren't keen about having to share that responsibility. I think that's pretty what it would boil down to. Um, but um, the the people who were doing the work, you know, the guys on the shop floor, us, you know, us soldiers, <laughs> we just got on with it, you know. Um, but to answer your question, yes, I, I, yeah, you're right. It's, it's four, maybe five people. It's my first time sort of man managing, but my managing technique is more more in a sense of working as a team. Um, yes, I sign off your holiday, and yes, I'll be the person that will have to speak to you if there's a disciplinary issue or concern. But um, I'm very, very um, happy to say, very lucky to say that that never was the case with the guys that I work with um, and the people I brought in. What was the most challenging aspect of managing people? Would you say? Um, I mean, you've. Uh, it's a strange environment, that one, um, especially in it being a startup, because everyone's down there to work and you forget, especially like myself, you know, I'm not, I'm not married. I don't have children. Um, and you forget that people do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people have people have lives outside of work. Um, and so you have to be respectful of that. And it's dealing and knowing how to deal with that. And I, and I try to be as... Um, sincere and um, empathetic as I possibly can with everyone that works with me. Um, there's always this attitude that, you know, you, you put in every, you, know, you get rewarded for the amount of work that you put in. And there's definitely that at Tesla. Okay. And your next role after Tesla was um, almost the opposite end of the scale in terms of company size. So you went to, uh, to Jaguar Land Rover. Now compared to every business that you've worked, worked at before and after, they're a lot much of a larger company in terms of headcount, structure. Um, for want of a better phrase, it Jaguar Land Rover, people I would say, are, when I speak to people who work there, that you're almost pigeonholed into a certain area within the business. Uh, how, how did you find that compared to what you've been used to? Um, in all honesty, I, I, I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I mean, fair enough. It's di- different for okay. everybody. You know, no, 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 in all honesty, um, I mean, during the last, few months of Tesla, um, it's such a long time ago, um, I was being approached by sort of a variety of different automotive companies, mm-hmm. um, all of them eager to, to understand EV supply chain. You know. In fact, most of us after Tesla, I mean, we felt a bit like rock stars. I mean, we're being part yeah. of something, you know, felt something that that successful was helping us or helping people open doors to a lot of other automotive companies. Um, I personally was interested in working with one particular company um, which I won't name. Um, but the problem I had um, was by this time, I'd only, as you say, I'd only worked with Lotus and a startup. And one of the prerequisites for this company was that I needed to have some corporate exposure. Um, I spoke with 
some old friends who had joined JLR and with the help of a, a recruiter such as yourself, it wasn't you, it was um, uh, they secured me a role at JLR within the aftermarket team. Um, as I say, I, I wasn't a fan. Um, and the reason for it was basically JLR at the time were, were bringing in their supply chain back in-house, the aftermarket mm -hmm. team, uh, where previously it was being managed by a 3PL uh, company. Um, it was my role to coordinate the part availability for each of the Jaguar launches, support the transition of resource in-house, and to help create a product launch team. I think basically looking back on it, they just didn't know what to do with me. Um, at first they had me stakeholder managing information from various departments and publishing my findings. But I confess after a few days of being shown how to do this, this became a, a very simple task and I was quickly running out of things to occupy my day. Mm. Uh, again, fortunately, um, in a chance meeting, I'd started to talk with the uh, person in charge of accessories for the vehicles, you know, um, ski racks, that type of thing, bumpers. Mm -hmm. Um, who asked if I'd be interested in supporting her, which I did. And it meant that I was back working on smaller bill of materials, but I was back in familiar territory. Um, yeah. I was working with suppliers again. I was working to deadlines. I was ensuring materials were on site at correct times, that the quality was correct. I was working back in logistics. Smaller environment, but gradually um, the management at JLR began giving me full vehicle programs to work on along with the, the current 3PL team at the time as well. So when it came to creating this new launch team, um, the senior management identified me as, as one of the best candidates due to my experience and my success in the recent programs. They'd given me, you know, they'd, um, I then inherited, and this is when it got fun, I then inherited um, 16 brand new planners, all of whom were from <laughs> the recently removed 3PL company, um, so some of them, of course, had been made redundant, um, or had worked in other areas of the JLR business, and I had a couple that had come externally. And our first launch to have completed without um, this, the original uh, 3PL company support was the F-Type. Now, previously, <laughs> by the 3PL, the, the 3PL company that uh, JLR used to work with um, for the aftermarket, um, the, they'd hit a 72% bin fill rate, uh, mm -hmm. which is materials on site in the hubs, in the depots, ready to support. So when a vehicle launches, there's you know, the aftermarket supports there and the parts are there to support them. And um, they're measured by bin fill. And at that point, the, uh, they'd hit a 72%, which at the time, everyone at JNR was very, very happy with. Um, now with my new team, um, and the naivety, <laughs> I wanted to hit uh, 90%, mm. 90 plus. And I knew I could. Um, the only thing was I had to convince my new team. Um, and of course, they'd all been busy learning and being trained on the ways in which the 3PL company had been doing things because yeah. uh, JLR didn't want any ripples. So uh, I went through the, the very, very basics that I used to do for Lotus that I did at Tesla and I wanted to break it all down into commodity groups. And eventually they came round to my way of working. And mm -hmm. although there was some resilience from the management, uh, when the launch happened uh, in the new year in January um, and the numbers came in, um, me and my team hit a 96% benefit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and although, but the thing was though, Although everyone was happy with me and the team, 
uh, and the management were keen to sort of keep me on and progress with me. I, at that point, I was just, I was just unhappy. I, I wasn't enjoying it. I, yeah. um, I knew that I knew, you know, I knew that Binfield count number over the Christmas period. And I knew that people would be happy and eager for me to stay on, but I didn't like the dynamics of working with such a large corporation. Uh, you know, as you say, I was just a number. There were so many processes just to get through each grade to then be promoted. Um, attitudes hadn't changed for certain activities for, for such a long time. Spend was ridiculous. I mean, I, I felt that after working at Tesla for the last six years, my career at that point, I felt it had gone back 10 years. So um, fortunately, um, a, a wonderful, wonderful man, another giant in the automotive supply chain industry and uh, a very, very good friend and mentor to me, Peter Servant, reached out to me about whether or not I'd be interested in joining a, another startup. Yeah, and that, that brings us on to Emerald and, and LEVC uh, in 2014. Um, so, you know, uh, as you've just mentioned there, similar to Tesla, another emerging business at the forefront of the EV market. Um, specialist company, they were working on the, uh, w- would that be the TX5 that you would have been working on when you joined there? That's right, yeah. The, 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 the current London black cab that's out there now, the, the TX5. Brilliant. So, so what was it like when you first joined that? I mean, I've done a bit of recruitment for, for LEVC and Emerald over the years, probably just looking at the times you were there, probably a couple of years after you joined, um, I started to do a bit of work with them, maybe 2016. What was it like when you first joined them back in 2014? Um, <laughs> well, it's, it was a different experience. I mean, once again, um, I was taking a risk uh, like I did with Lotus when I moved to Tesla. Um, I was leaving a, a stable company in JLR uh, with a secure role and salary and everything else. And then I was, in, I was joining Emerald. Uh, I'd also have to become a contractor as well. Oh, did you do um, as a contractor that? Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. I was a contractor. So I was going self-employed, which I will say, by the way, I, 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 I always thought it was going to be a very, very difficult um, activity of becoming um, a self-employed. Um, but it wasn't. It was a lot, a lot easier mm. uh, with the advice that you know there's available to people. Um, yeah, so you can get yourself set up as a company yeah. and stuff in about two or three days and get everything I think, all, I think the hardest all up and running. Just, I think the hardest bit was just choosing a name for my company because <laughs> um, every single name that I wanted to choose had already been taken. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it was uh, it was a big, big risk. Another another risk. Just I mean, the criticism. I mean, I didn't mention it, but the criticism I got from moving from Lotus to Tesla. Um, was quite rife um, again because it was such a big risk. But, you know, you're leaving a role that was secure and going to a, a startup, and I was doing exactly the same this time. Um, and again, the role, by the way, was only supposed to last six months, and yeah. that yeah. six months became six years. <laughs> and, and I confess, it was the best decision I, I ever made. I mean, I, I, don't, I need to comment. I think, I mean, just. Uh, about Emerald is I don't think many people appreciate just how much input and work was actually undertaken by Emerald, especially in the creation of the, the new London taxi. I mean, Emerald is a company created by this genius that is uh, Andy Tempest. Um, Andy put together a small consortium of other legends in automotive industry. Um, people like, I mean, I'm going to list names and I don't know if you'll know, but people like Dave Tate, Ian Collins, Jim Haddon, Kevin Elgood, Steve Swift, Ian R- Erding. Um, I mean, you might not recognize them. I know but, a couple of them, to be yeah. fair. But, but in the automotive industry, as you know, is a tight family. So uh, those mean, name, names are quite big. And me going in to meet and work with these guys is incredible. 
Um, initially, Andy and this team had created an, uh, a prototype electric van before the likes of Arrival and Mercedes. I mean, these guys had actually developed this van. And whilst they were looking for funding, Andy was approached by the new CEO of uh, London Taxis and asked whether he and his team would be interested in developing the technology uh, being used on the van. Um, I mean, <laughs> the way it's explained to me was basically take your van and add some windows to it, as I was explained to me. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot more to it than that. Um, and answer to your initial question, sorry, I went off through. Um, the role, the role was superb. I mean, the team was initially very, very small, uh, with about 10 or 11 of us. Um, it was long days, uh, working in small offices out of hotel rooms. Uh, we were using McDonald's restaurants because they had Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I joined the team, they had uh, the beginnings of a uh, bill of materials, which was uh, a hybrid of other programs and vehicles. But it was usually, and that's usually how most bombs start anyway, from pre previous programs. Um, but it was here the work really began. And my role uh, fell into similar territory as that, that previously conducted with Tesla and Lotus. But this time, though, um, although I had not really enjoyed it, I'd gained further experience and obviously exposure in working with JLR. And with it came new methods and of sharing information, new processes, suppliers, and obviously procedures. So um, it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and a great time. I mean, after the success of the first two prototype taxis that we did as Emerald, uh, Emerald quickly became part of the Geely family. Um, we were then empowered to not only just uh, set about in producing more of the prototypes, but also the preparation and development of the factory and bringing in the staffing as well. Um, Peter and I, for example, brought in familiar faces who we trusted who, um, and could support and develop a, a new purchasing team. Um, two amazing influential buyers who I've worked with back at Lotus, um, Simon Lyon and Val Wells. Um, these, had, these two had taught me um, a great deal when I was at Lotus and, and now I was getting to work alongside them again. Um, the, the team grew and with it came more challenges and demands. I mean, honestly, it, it was one of the, the hardest gigs I'd ever worked on, but probably one of the most rewarding. I mean, the hours were arduous, the stress high, sleep minimal, um, <laughs> but that sense of achievement, especially now when you see one of the taxis on the road, um, it's a great feeling. Uh, one, basically, nearing the end of the taxis, uh, completion that's and again my role has always been I do the prototypes yeah you know, I do the con the mules the concepts whatever you want to call them prototypes and I take them as far as production and then I hand them over to the production teams yeah I let the big boys then start um, and nearing the end of the taxi um, uh, the financial uh, director a guy called Rian Erding uh, who must must know this um, Rian had got word that the US Postal Service were looking to replace their vans and were putting this billion dollar contract out for tender. So Rian saw this opportunity and together he and Andy put together a, a rough prototype and developed a plan and submitted it to the US. Now the Postal Service accepted it and along with I think nine other automotive companies uh, mm -hmm. present, presented us now the newly named LEVC USA, um, yeah, uh, a sum of money to develop and supply prototypes. The only snag was we had 12 months to design, develop, and supply these vehicles <laughs> for testing and evaluation to the Postal Service in America. Um, once again, 
I was responsible for facilit facilitating um, the bill of materials, coordinating with the engineers, buyers, materials, warehousing, logistics, um, all the you know, end to end supply chain, ending with the, my customer, as always, being the build team. Mm -hmm. However, um, I was also responsible for working with, um, uh, well, working through the Buy America program with the purchasing team who we'd sent out to the US to secure suppliers uh, when we won the bid. So it was, um, and it was a very, very stressful, stressful time. I mean, the highlight, I must admit, uh, was making and supplying those vans within the 11 months. I mean, mo most of the people there uh, are, are incredible. I, I can honestly say it was one of my best, one of the best experiences working at Emeralds and then later, you know, it's uh, um, LEBC USA. Um, so, it reminded, it reminded me, reminds me a lot of the team at Tesla. Um, I mean, there were a few people, not to be too philosophical about it, but there are a few people in your life that sort of make an impact and you feel sort of honor bound. Um, but some of that team, honestly, I will forever support and especially Andy Rean and Peter, who I would follow anywhere after that. It was, it was an incredible experience. So the, the, that van, uh, the van project for the USA, did that tie yeah. in with the LCV van that LEVC have been doing? Or? No. Completely separate, is it? <laughs> no, it was a completely, completely separate project. Right, completely, that's a project that I've not heard of before, to be honest, which is no, surprising. Well, there's a reason for you, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, although we, you know, finished the vans and the feedback we were getting was extremely positive from the US Postal Service, um, and the public, there was, um, you know, national polls going out with the um, websites showing what vans had been submitted and that type of thing. And a popular opinion was that our van was by far the best. Um, but there were constant delays, uh, just like you do with any postal service. Yeah. There's always a delay in getting, <laughs> your, uh, in getting a decision um, uh, as to who won the bid. And of course, in the background, LEVC at that time, um, the sales of the new taxi were, were slow. Uh, and Geely had to start making a tough call uh, as to, to spend. Um, and unfortunately, um, all of the third party projects at that time, um, the postal van being one of them, uh, had to close. All right. So, so w did the. Yeah, so we had to, so we, we basically withdraw, withdrew from the, the bidding. And um, most heartbreaking of all was watching those, those vans that we sent across be um, destroyed. Oh. It was, it was so upsetting. We were so, so close. And, and Rian and uh, John Woodmore and Dave Black, uh, Andy, I mean, we'd all done such an amazing job uh, in getting them there. The team that pulled it together and the night that we worked, it was honestly, uh, it, was, it was just heart-wrenching. It really, truly was. And uh, we were so close. It really, truly was. Wow. And did did that coincide then with with this uh, the cutbacks and things like that? Did that coincide with you deciding to move on from uh, from Emerald and join well, uh, joining Emerald? Yeah, I mean that was basically it. I mean the, with the third party projects now uh, cancelled, um, uh, I then by this point, um, well, let's think. I mean it was around about this time I sort of approached. That's it. Yeah, I was approached by the wonderful a wonderful guy called Ben Jardine. Um, who's the chief of product at Arrival. Yeah. Um, you must know Ben. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, everyone knows Ben. Um, ben has been, uh, Ben had been working with, those who don't know, uh, Ben had been working with this Russian billionaire 
in producing this the new generation i say what was he is uh with this russian video producing the new generation bus and van um ben basically asked whether i'd be interested in helping take a new prototype ev bus into production um i mean i was fascinated however it was another startup and i had just spent the last 10 years living out of a suitcase <laughs> and uh and on top of that i'd also been offered a, a much simpler closer to home role a well-established automotive company at that time <laughs> um but um anyway I, I got talking more about it with him and uh, what he needed and my involvement i then met our very mutual friend mr scott evans mm -hmm. and from just meeting and talking to them regardless of location money facilities or culture um i agreed to join them um, I, th I mean, it's important, isn't it? I mean, you know, whether whether in meetings or, or interviews to remember that, you know, you are interviewing them as much as they are you. Very so, much, yeah. You know, you have to work with these people, perhaps even report to them. And if you don't get you know, a first impression that, you know, immediately comfortable, then I would question whether to go forward. But in meeting Ben Scott and then later the team, I, I was sold. I truly was. And, and could you talk us through what you, so you, you stayed at Arrival for, was it around 12 months, something like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just I mean, talk Arrival, us through what you were doing there. Yeah, I mean, Arrival was a, Arrival was a difficult one. Um, I was initially brought in to support the supply chain of the bus program. However, when I joined, there was, only, there was no other purchasing department, really, or support on, uh, on site at that time. There were a couple of uh, admin purchases uh, and, a, and a chap who was looking after the Russian sector of the business, but there was little in structure, uh, li little in um, structure. Uh, the engineers were pretty much doing most of the work and Ben and Scott themselves um, were bringing in suppliers and pushing through. Um, I think this was initially due to the senior manager's desire and understanding of importance of early involvement of supply chain. I think the focus at that time was mainly on design and engineering and development. Um, initially, um, I think there also their intent was to give the entire supply chain activity to a 3PL firm to manage. Um, but in my first week, in fact, my first meeting, uh, in meeting uh, the 3PL company that they were working with, it was quite clear at that time that neither party knew what the other wanted yeah. and how to deliver it. Um, but no, during my time at Arrival, I, I developed the, the basic structure for them to proceed, uh, layout um, as a layout as to develop the, the team structure and requirements and introductions uh, of an ERP system. I created a, a bill of materials structure for them to work from, which they've obviously, um, it's now generated into something even better now. Um, some standard commercial documentation. Um, I developed uh, their principal processes and procedures. Uh, and also brought with me some of my preferred suppliers to help with the prototype builds. I mean, I, I don't really wish to gush about this, Eddie, but I have to say, Arrival is a unique company. It's one of the most gifted and up and coming companies ever going around at the moment with the most mm -hmm. incredible designers and engineers. I mean, it's young, it's vibrant. I mean, there's so much incredible things and people there. It's a company unlike any other automotive firm I've ever worked with. I mean, the people employed from diverse automotive backgrounds, you've got people from Google, Apple, McLaren, Dyson, Burberry, even Sainsbury's. Mm. Uh, the supply chain team 
which had gone from two people uh, is now one of the biggest departments at arrival um, and this is due to the to the brilliance that is of Tracy Yee, um, the team she's built around her, and the success that will undoubtedly follow is a, a total and utter testament to her. But honestly, I'm genuinely excited for everyone to see these incredible vehicles that this startup company are producing. I mean, they're at a stage right now. Um, I, I mean, commercial automotive history is about to be made, and I'm just pleased to have a had a tiny little part of it it's a, a great great organization it truly is one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times through this podcast has been mentors um you you've mentioned it on a couple of occasions at different times within different country uh, companies yeah. with regards to mentorship obviously it sounds like it's something that, that you hold uh, quite in quite high importance and high Absolutely. esteem with regards to like securing a mentor how have you gone about doing that is that something that just naturally happens? Do you actually approach people? Could you just give us an idea of, of, of how mentors have come into your, your life and your career? For me, for me it's happened naturally. Um, it starts off being um, usually your, your direct report manager. Um, I'm aware of companies that um, people do go up to senior members of staff who they've spoken with or talked with and asked if they wouldn't mind being their mentors. I, I'm aware of that activity. Um, but um, for me, it's always been a question of uh, it just develops. Uh, uh, I've been very, very fortunate in the in the people I've worked with. These are people who guide you and teach you and show you. Um, you ask questions, as I keep saying. You keep asking questions, no matter how stupid they are. And as we've already established, my my background was never in automotive or in engineering. Uh-huh. Um, so my my strengths um, uh, are are that of being able to communicate and discuss with people and, and it's the practical acti- activities that needed to, to be worked upon and that's where these fantastic mentors have come into play. Brilliant and, and looking at um, just looking at the market as a whole current day then so we've got at the moment we've got the COVID situation you know there's the vaccination on the horizon and you know positives in, in that sense but we've also got Brexit around the corner as well from an automotive perspective, looking at it in the UK market, what's going to be the biggest challenge for automotive supply chains over the next 12 to 24 months, would you say? Well, um, reading the news at the moment, um, UK automotive industry has recorded its what worst six months performance since, mm-hmm. since the end of World War II, which is remarkable. Um, manufacturing is down, what, 43%? Um, there's more than 11,000, 12,000 jobs lost in the UK. They've only produced, I think, something like 400,000 cars this year. Um, I'm speaking to suppliers who deal in tier two and tier three, who are massively affected by this and having to go into administration. Um, Same with some of the tier ones. Uh, The larger OEMs are doing what they can to help bail some of these suppliers out, especially if it has obviously an immediate effect uh, or impact to their business. Yeah. But it's a, a difficult time across the industry, massively. Um, not to get too political uh, with this chat, but uh, in speaking with friends about Brexit, um, it's clear that the, the European Union needs to secure a trade deal uh, with the UK automotive sectors. Um, as you have to remember, it is one of the UK's and Europe's most valuable asset automotive industry. Um, there need to be a secured deal that delivers zero da- uh, tariffs from day one need to create a new framework, which will then in turn help minimize friction at the border. 
and allow manufacturers and suppliers to move staff and materials between sites in the UK and EU without any restrictions, delays or cost. Um, in addition, the UK must also secure uh, preferential access to, to those key markets around the world. Most importantly, deals with Japan, Turkey, South Korea uh, and the US. Um, on a positive note, <laughs> not wishing to sound too down on, but on a positive note, I'm hopeful that businesses have taken the opportunity to reevaluate their company structure during this crisis, um, where areas of the business need to be streamlined and where working smarter and efficiently sort of becomes the norm. Um, other pluses, I must confess, uh, one thing that keeps popping up is how COVID has helped identify to a lot of companies, people's abilities, um, their trust, competence, uh, and their loyalty to the roles per the success of people working from home, like you and I are doing now. Um, in the past, you know, I remember when companies and teams would sort of sneer at the idea of a member of staff working from home. Yeah. But with improved communications like we have right now, Skype and Zoom, um, it's become the norm. Uh, employees have seen, a, a, I mean, I've spoken to people who've seen massive increases in productivity and results. Um, and this is in turn means that companies will then review the amount of real estate. You know, do they need as many desks in it anymore in the office space? Um, and uh, they can promote a more work-life attitude. Um, it's going to save companies vast sums of money uh, in real estate and perhaps even help open up recruitment uh, opportunities for people, not just within their own country, but around the world as well. So I think, you know, we always have to look at the, the positives out of this as well. And, and in terms of the, like, looking at uh, supply chains over the next maybe five to 10 years as we're moving towards uh, the electric vehicle, uh, electric vehicle market taking over, uh, and we say goodbye to IC engines, what's the biggest challenge in terms of battery manufacturing for supply chains in the UK? I mean, there's so much uncertainty at the moment with both COVID and Brexit. Um, there's both excitement and pressure per that announcement mm -hmm. you know, with regards to the government's decision to move zero emissions. But I think as one of your guests has mentioned previously, 10 years is, is not a long time in automotive. No, time. not at all. And there will be a considerable amount that needs to be done. Um, I was reading an article the other day and the key to, they're saying that the key to business survival and future successes after COVID would be how resilient a business can actually be. And as I previously mentioned, I'm, I'm hopeful that businesses during this time have taken the opportunity to, to reevaluate their company structures, um, smarter and efficiently working, you know, improvements in their communication with suppliers and customers, reviewing those suppliers at risk and what can be done to support them, focus on their critical parts and potential stoppages and shortfalls. I can go on about this one, Andy. <laughs> I don't think we've got enough time to talk about this. <laughs> but it's going to be a difficult time, by all means. It's certainly going to be an interesting time anyway over the next <laughs> decade. It's, it's extremely exciting where the industry's at. But with, with COVID and Brexit, there's obviously a lot of nervousness as well. I think, you know, we've got to get through the next 12 months, um, see where we're at with Brexit, trade deals, etc. And if common sense prevails and we've got some decent trade deals, I'm really, really excited about the next 10 years in the industry. But I, we'll, I, I, I totally to agree. What, make, what makes me laugh at the moment, um, well, as I say, mate, at the moment, what has always made me laugh is, is the fact that during the time we were making the Tesla, the amount of, um, amount of abuse that we got, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that the electric car was just a flash in the pan. <laughs> 
it wasn't going to go anywhere. And I'm always fascinated to know now that all those people that criticized it <laughs> as to whether or not they're driving a Tesla or an electric vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> if they're not now, they certainly will be soon. Yeah, they anyway. will be now, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and just from a last question then, um, so for any any young automotive professionals that are coming up um, or young <laughs> professionals looking to forge a career in automotive within supply chain, procurement, <laughs> those sorts of areas, if you could give them one piece of advice that they'd take on board now and implement into their development and career <clears> moving <throat> forward, what would it be and why? Don't get involved in automotive, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do something more useful. Um, no, uh, I mean, if you're determined, um, for me, okay, so I write things down. There's a list. There's write things down. I've always taken a notebook everywhere I go. I have hundreds of these things. They act like journals for each and every program I've ever done. As I've kept saying throughout this uh, chat today, ask questions. No matter how stupid you think it is, don't be afraid. Um, supply chain, especially low volume concepts, startup, end-to-end -end supply chain like what I do, um, is certainly not for the faint-hearted, nor is it a profession that is the same the world over. Um, the days and nights are long. You have a very limited personal life. Um, it's extremely stressful and tiring. Um, it's an ever-changing role of a beast. Um, it's also one of the most rewarding, energetic and enjoyable jobs you could ever have. Um, you have to be prepared to support everything. It's a role that in the morning you could be sat with a CEO of a company, uh, then at a very flashy automotive convention or show at lunchtime. But remember, ultimately, you will be back later that day in a very cold, damp warehouse counting brackets and bolts for a stock take until the very early hours of the morning but no um be polite courteous show empathy patience resilience respect your team uh, your colleagues your management um suppliers and contacts especially um always go that extra mile where you can give 100 percent and everything you ask to i think ultimately Eddie, it's try new things and take risks that's the one thing i can honestly say um Sometimes those risks won't pay off, um, but the times that they do make life far more interesting and much, much, much more fun. Brilliant. What a great way to finish. So um, thanks, thanks a lot for joining me today, Matt. I really appreciate it. There's a lot of good wow. lessons there. And uh, yeah, it's been great, <laughs> it's great long, to chat it? to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Eddie. And um, yeah, thank you so much. It was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Careers in Automotive. If you've enjoyed this episode or enjoy the series, please could I ask you to leave a review of the podcast and also like and share it with anybody that may be interested. This will just help me read the widest audience possible. Thank you very much.